Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, live. Hello, everybody. Welcome aboard Broadway Bullet Volume 105. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and I'm in a really good mood today. I just got a couple emails from some of my listeners. I always love that, so keep sending me email at info at broadwaybullet.com. And we've got a lot of stuff this episode. We've got an interview with the two writers of the new big, big, big off-Broadway musical, In the Heights. We're going to be talking with the creators of The Sublet Experiment, Making Rounds to an Apartment Near You. Marty Cooper is going to tell us about Moby Dick the Musical in On the Positive Side. We're going to talk with the Oberon Theatre Company in celebration of their 10th anniversary. And we got the writer and director of the new hit off-Broadway play, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, as well as a whole lot more. So let's jump right into it. Up Close. Lights up on Washington Heights, up at the break of day, I wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away, pop the grade at the crack of dawn, sing while I wipe down the awning, hey all good morning. Ice cold piragua, paracha, china, cherry, strawberry, and just for today, I got mame. Many of my regular listeners may know that I'm originally from Montana. I don't know if I've said specifically, though, that I also live currently in New York in Washington Heights. Whippa! <laughs> so I was very excited to see the new musical, In the Heights, and we have the book writer, Kiara Hudes, here That's with me. us. And the lyricist, composer, actor... Um, I think he also cleans up the stage and mops afterwards. Lynn Miranda. That's a stereotype. Yes. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Good. Good. How are you? Thanks for having us. Well, you know, the first thing I have to say is, you know, I think people see the heights in different ways. I have to say right up front, my girlfriend came with me, and we both had very different thoughts about how you captured Washington Heights. I was I saw instantly the the joy and the family bonds and everything that you guys captured and my girlfriend missed the garbage <laughs> There's a little bit of garbage in Act Two. There's a little bit of garbage in Act Two. If you um, if you've got a craving for garbage, Act Two is where it's at for you. Yeah, but it you know it's funny. I uh I, I grew up in Inwood, I grew up in northern Manhattan. And uh but I went to high school and elementary school on the Upper East Side. And, you know, my my friends were scared to come up to my house for playdates. I always had to go to the Upper East Side and Upper West Side. I mean, they thought I lived in the Bronx when I told them I lived on Dykeman Street. They were like, is that Manhattan? They go up that high? Um, so there's a lot of perception, oh, mistaken perceptions about northern Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you caught the joy and the, and the family because it's really a, a residential family neighborhood, um, uh, largely Dominican. Um, but it's really a stew. There was, um, there's this great restaurant called Coogan's on 168th that is this old Irish 
uh, restaurant, but they also have a salsa blues and shamrock festival every year. They've really welcomed every wave of immigration as it's come in. And uh, we're a stew up there, and so we wanted to reflect that. You've been working on this music for seven years since yeah. you were 20, huh? Yes, yeah. I thought of it, uh, I, I started writing it um, my sophomore year at Wesleyan, and uh, it was one of those things where I was just, I kept doodling the title in my notes in class, and I was like, I'm going to write a full-length <laughs> musical. And so I applied for the space, the student-run space at Wesleyan, and they gave me a weekend. And, you know, like most people, I just worked on deadline. I, I was like, okay, April 20th to 22nd, I'm sharing with the Terpsichore dance space <laughs> for that weekend. I have to stage it on the Marley, and i got to write a show. Um, so I spent most of winter break uh, writing that and just sort of putting everything I knew or everything I wanted to see in a musical, you know, Latinos not wielding knives, uh, but actually, you know, being in love and having businesses and having family and uh, and sort of put it all into this musical. And it was originally much more of a love story um, set in Washington Heights. And then uh, I graduated. I moved back to northern Manhattan uh, in 2002. And uh, and Tommy Kale, the director, and I started worked for about a year on making it into a full-length musical and making it, you know, much more about the community. And then uh, we got a huge assist and uh, boost when we found Chiara in 2004, who yeah. basically had the same childhood as me in North Philly. And I will <laughs> let her take it from here. Well, C. Lynn was talking about the story, but when he tells me the story of how In the Heights was created, he always talks about also wanting to create um, a piece of theater that reflected the diversity of music in, in the neighborhood and just kind of taking a walk through the neighborhood. Now, when I, when I came on board, I said, okay, let's go take a walk, give me a tour, because I was new to New York in general. And, Where um, are you from originally? I'm from Philadelphia. Okay. So we went for a walk, and, and he was telling me about how he had always imagined that he wanted the way the show sounded to sound like you were taking a walk through 10 blocks, and you walk by a bodega, and you might hear a bachata beat, and a car goes by, and you hear a hip-hop beat. And so this, this diversity of sounds which also, also reflects the diversity of the residents. So it has that kind of upbeat music feel to it, too. So when I came on board, of course, I was... It already had all of these um, amazing sounds and this amazing, vibrant life and these great characters. And so it was just me taking all of the beautiful things that Lynn had already started creating and continuing to um, sculpt a more focused story out of it that was about the neighborhood. One of the first things I noticed when I moved to the Heights was all the all the parties in the summer and I mean, <laughs> my God, the noise and the music coming up from down below. Yeah, it's, it's like, actually, it's really funny. One of the critics said, why are there fireworks on July 3rd instead of July 4th? You don't understand. In Washington Heights, there are fireworks from June <laughs> 1st to August 30th. I mean, the, the amount of kids setting off fireworks, it's constant in the summer. Constant. <laughs> so. And I actually first, when I first moved up here was the black, one of the first blackouts in uh, oh 1999. 1999, so. the one that just affected us. I remember I had to go to my friend's house on the Upper West Side to get some sleep and that was a huge deal and uh, it was funny when t that blackout was in place. We put that in the script in about 2002 and people were like, this is very unrealistic that this one neighborhood would get <laughs> hit by a blackout and then the blackout of 2003 happened and everyone sort of knew, had a better sense of what it was like. Yeah. The biggest thing that surprised me is uh, the musical in a lot of ways seems to be as marketed as the it was just the contemporary music saver. You know, there's a, there's a couple musicals every every year or two that are marketed as it's new music. It's not theater music, like trying to drag in new people. So I don't know what I was expecting, but there is the music is indeed fresh and new. But a lot of times when they advertise that, it's also put together by people who don't seem to get theater a lot of the times. But I walked in and I was like, this, these people know theater. These people know <laughs> musical theater. They, I, I, I got a sense that you knew your history, that you knew how to tell a story with lyrics and phrase everything. And 
and I appreciate that immensely. Yeah, I mean, I was a musical theater nerd. Uh, at the same time, I was listening to hip-hop albums when I was little. In sixth grade, um, at Hunter, we do a thing called the sixth grade play, uh, which is basically all you do. And for some reason, our year, we did 20-minute versions of six musicals. So by the time I was 12, I had been Captain Hook, Bernardo, <laughs> a son in Fiddler, a farmer in Oklahoma, an Adipearl backup in The Wiz, and Conrad <laughs> Birdie. Um, so I had this lethal dose of musical theater uh, by the time I was very young, and so it's always been sort of uh, ingrained in my psyche, and my parents, you know, always took us to musicals whenever we were little, but at the same time, you know, I would, you know, you'd put on your soundtrack albums for your friends and be like, get that shit off of there. We want to listen to Biggie. Um, so I wanted to write, I wanted to write music, you know, musical theater music that I wouldn't be ashamed to blast in my car, at, you know, full volume. Yeah, it's a traditionally, I mean, one of the things that was exciting when I, be, when I came on board is that it, it is a traditional piece in that, you know, it has love stories, it has a comic number, it has a big dance number, it has all of these traditional music theater elements. It's a traditional book musical, but and using a traditional structure to kind of bring in some new sounds and yeah, bring in Trojan a new horse. lyrical voice. Because I, I think Lynn's lyrics are one of the most unique features of the show. They're so exciting and... I don't know, when I, whenever I listen to his lyrics, especially when he brings in new stuff for me to hear, I get that feeling of like leaning forward on the edge of my seat and being like, wow, how did he rhyme all that stuff? So, <laughs> um, and, and a story that is, is very traditional in some ways, but it is also bringing like some new colors and some new elements in. So it, it is a blend of something that is completely playing homage to a traditional structure, but also with elements of a new voice, too. Well, we opened up this segment with just a brief bit of the opening number from In the Heights, and uh, maybe we should continue. Uh, this was recorded live at one of your... Uh, yeah, this is this is our opening, and this is our, you know, we're trying to... We've got the hip-hop section, and but we also have, you know, imagine the car blasting a salsa song whizzing by, and it's sort of those all those things fusing into our opening number. And this is Usnavi, our bodega owner, opening his shop and introducing us to his day. And you probably never heard my name Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated Exacerbated by the fact that my syntax is highly complicated Cause I immigrated from the same place in the Caribbean Dominican Republic I love it, Jesus, I'm jealous of it And beyond that, ever since my folks passed on I had it on back, goddamn I gotta get on that Oh, the milk is gone bad, hold up just a second why is everything in this fridge warm and tepid? I better step it up and fight the heat Cause I'm not making any profit if the coffee isn't light and sweet Woo! Abuela, tell me there's milk at home, my fridge broke People will riot without café con leche Amigo, we ran out, you better try my mother's own recipe One can of condensed milk Nice, your lottery tickets? A 68 
to that the Rosarios They run the cab company, the trumps of the barrio See, their daughter Nina's off at college, tuition is mad steep So Kevin doesn't sleep and Camila is mad cheap Good morning, Usami Pan caliente, café con leche For $20 on today's lottery One ticket, that's it Hey, a man's got a dream Don't mind him, he's all excited Cause Nina blew in the 3 a.m. My baby girl so sweet Navi come over for dinner There's plenty to eat So then Yesenia walks in the room uh -huh. She smells sex and she perfume uh -oh. It smells like one of those trees that you hang from the rear view Sonny, you're late. Chillax, cuz. Beauty rap. Me and my cousin running just another dime a dozen. Mom and pop stop and shop. And oh my God, it's gotten too darn hot. Like my man Cole Porter said, people come through for a few cold waters in a lottery ticket. Just a part of the routine. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's got a dream. They gossip as I sip my coffee and smirk. The first stop is people hot to work. Bust it. I'm like, one dollar. Condoms, what kind? That's two quarters. Two quarter orders. The New York Times, you need a bag for that. The taxes at it. Once you get some practice at it, you can do rapid mathematics automatically. Selling maxi feather, fuzzy dice for taxi cab. Practically everybody's stressed. Yes, but they press through the mess, bounce checks, and wonder what's next in the heights. Choking on the heat, the world spins around while I'm frozen in my seat. The people that I know all keep on rolling down the street, but every day is different, so I'm switching up the beat. Cause my parents came with nothing and they got a little more. It's sure we're poor, but yo, at least we got the store. And it's all about that legacy they left with me as destiny. One day I'll be on the beach with Sunny writing checks to me.
there tons of actors in New York that were just waiting for a chance like this? Or because there's not necessarily as many roles like this, did you have to go hunting to find the people? Oh, no. They've been, I mean... Latino performers have been waiting <laughs> for a shot like this forever. Seriously. I mean, you could go to our cast right now and, and sing any bar of West Side Story. We've all done it. <laughs> we, we all know the choreography backwards and forwards. Everyone's been in a summer stage production of it. Um, you know, we have some... You know, we have some people who, who saw the Cape Man, and uh, you know, we're you know, we're gorgeous score, but we're wielding knives again. And, uh, and people have been, you know... There are a lot of Latinos who, who work a lot. Who, you know, a lot of our cast work their butts off in shows that aren't necessarily Latino, but they're just great. And so I think, I think a lot of performers have been waiting for, for a show where they, they get to be themselves, which has been pretty exciting to watch, especially in the casting process. Yeah, I saw somewhere posted um, Andrea Burns, who plays Daniela. You know, she's, she has so much experience, and she's such a great performer. And I saw on a blog or something... Um, someone saying, oh, my God, I've been a fan of Andreas for years. I had no idea she was Latino because she hasn't had a big role like that on Broadway. Right, she you know, was she's Belle. in Beauty and the Beast and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, now she comes out as this salon owner with a lot of flavor, you know? Yeah, we're, we're very happy that we get to, you know, employ all these Latino actors who have just been, you know, waiting for their chance. It's, it's really exciting. And it's cool to have new people who are young and who are just starting out their career and have people who have so much experience and all together on one stage kind of in this in this generational story. Yeah, and I, I think at some point, too, Karen Olivo is going to have a real big career oh, on yeah. the stage. Yeah, no, she's Fantastic. amazing. <laughs> when she came in, I, I remember her uh, seeing her for the first time. And, and it, it was like this for a lot of the roles where... Um, you just have to see someone on the material for the first time and say, oh, my gosh, this person was born to play this role, you yeah. know, where it just feels like like such a great match. I think it was like that with Lynn and Usnavi also because he wasn't <laughs> always the lead actor in this. Yeah. But the producers kind of came to realize, I guess, with Tommy. I wasn't around when this decision was made. But. Yeah, no, it was one of those things where when I first started working on this, this is before the producers came on board. It was just Tommy and I working with his production company, uh, Backhouse, and... Uh, it was a five-day equity workshop, and we couldn't teach the raps to anyone in five days who could learn it. And, you know, a lot of musical theater performers don't have hip-hop in their <laughs> repertory. They, they have to learn to dance. They have to learn to you have to be fluent in Spanish. You know, there's so many special skills. And so I was like, let me just do Usnavi for now. We didn't have the whole show yet, so I did, like, a freestyle rap version of what happens in the rest of the plot. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just kept doing it, and then it became sort of the thing I do, and my part got correspondingly larger, and here we are. Back in college, I did an experience once of where I acted in a show that I had written as well, and, um, and it was a musical, and I, I it was the worst decision I ever made in my <laughs> life. We mounted again the next summer. I promptly replaced, you know, and got you know somebody else to do the role. My mother was all upset because she couldn't see me on stage, so what was I really doing? Right, you know? right, right, right. But... When I acted in a show I wrote, I I couldn't drop it. I was thinking way more about what everybody else was doing in the show, and and are they getting it right? Oh yeah, they nailed that part. Thinking just all that stuff, and, and oh shit, I gotta go on stage. Yeah, it's it's funny <laughs> for me. The the process is really a process of subtraction, um, while because I've written the music, and so it, you know it's all I can do to not mouth along while everyone else is singing their lyrics. I mean, it's <laughs> one of the great things that we have such an amazing cast. Yes, I think somebody told me I did that too. That I mouth that you mouth. <laughs> yeah, no, that is that's like my. I have nightmares where I'm doing that, um, and if you start thinking as a 
writer on stage, you've already missed two lines, especially with the amount of lyrics we have in this show. But um, no, it's, it's, it's a testament to how great this cast is that it just makes my job. I'm probably the least experienced actor on that stage, but they make my job so easy because they're so good and they're so in it that it's just, you know, it just does itself. Why don't we take a listen to the second song we got okay. kind of queued up for this. Uh, um, this is Vanessa. She works uh, at the salon next door. Um, she, uh, every day, she lives, I think she lives a little further north by the elevated one train, and she uh, she just can't wait to uh, get out of this neighborhood. And I so think this, this is Karen O'Levo. This, this is, is Karen O'Levo, yeah, yeah. uh, future star, if not already <laughs> a huge star. And this is called It Won't Be Long Now. She visits the bodega uh, where Usnavi works with his young cousin. Yeah, she's sort of the love of Usnavi's life. And uh, and she sings this merengue number, which was really influenced by um, an artist uh, Kiara and I both love a lot named Juan Luis Guerra, who's sort of the best merengue writer of, you know, in the world, and one of the best songwriters living. And he writes these amazing songs about the failing healthcare system or, you know, if the Dominican Republic had oil, how things would be different, but they're the most danceable things you ever heard. And if you stop to listen to the lyrics, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's got the knowledge. <laughs> yeah. I want to address one comment that a critic made in Time Out New York. They, they, he said he felt that 
the neighborhood was just not gritty and dirty Ugh, enough for, for a character to want to escape <laughs> Where it. Where is the feces? <laughs> because there's a lot of the story centers around uh, the character, whether or not she wants to go to Stanford and leave the neighborhood. And other characters, like you just mentioned in the song we had just here, Karen Oliva wants to escape. And you know, the first thing I thought when I saw the play is, you don't have to be in a bullet-ridden, you know, crime-ridden area to want to escape. I'm from Montana. It's a nice middle-class you know, this, this town, nobody's really rich. You know, the economy kind of sucks, but it's not an awful place. But my God, everybody wants out. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, the, 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 In the Heights is a neighborhood like any other neighborhood in the country. The same problems that some critics may say we don't have enough of in In the Heights of crime and drugs are a plague in every city in, in this country. And, uh, and it's one of those things where, you know, what can you do? Every, every movie scene I've seen set in Washington Heights either has a knife in it or it's like the scene in Shaft where the drug deal happens. Yeah. So it, that's just the perception of, of where we live. And I, I, frankly, I, I wasn't really surprised by, by that criticism. Um, but, you know, hopefully this musical will act as a sort of corrective. Like, you know what? The people who live here are just like you, and they're getting priced of man- out of Manhattan just like you are, and we're just all trying to get by. Yeah, there was, in, in my neighborhood where I grew up in Philadelphia, it was, there were similar misconceptions where I had some friends who weren't allowed to come over and visit me because their parents were really scared of our neighborhood. But looking back on how I grew up, my neighborhood was is one of my favorite things about my childhood. It's, it was so interesting, so family-oriented, so diverse. We were always playing out on the street. And I think there's a little bit of what we were saying about Juan Luis Guerra also, which is he deals with these heavy issues through joy and through love and through these this um, kind of passionate, exuberant music. And I think there's a little bit of that, where the people in our, in our show are dealing with real problems. You know, they are struggling to pay the bills, are struggling to keep their businesses open with gentrification and with all sorts of other kind of um, family problems. But the way that they deal with them a lot is through exuberance and joy in the show also. It's not just focusing on, like you said, you know, everyone's not wearing a bulletproof vest, but that doesn't mean that they're living candy-coated lives. My last question, I don't know, this might be more suitable to ask Kevin McCollum if you're in the studio, but he's not, so I'll ask you. All right. <laughs> and I think it's what everybody's wondering. There's like 17 people in this cast? Uh, 20, 22, if you 22. count yeah. offstage things, 20 on stage. And I think everybody's wondering, how is this affordable in an off-Broadway house? Do you know, <laughs> do you know what their plans are? Is Because... I have no idea. I, we, we really don't know. We haven't talked to the producers. We haven't had a, a transfer talk. We are just... Uh... Because, I mean, we see this kind of thing happen when it's like the Atlantic Theater, or it's a theater company, and they're doing a short run. But I don't know if we've seen this kind of large-scale off-Broadway production mounted as a com- by a commercial entity yeah. from the start. Well, one thing I'm, I'm very proud of is that we have, we have this huge, really, I mean, Broadway-sized show in an off-Broadway space. And, and uh, as a and side it, note, the 37 Arts Center, my God, it's more comfortable than any Broadway theater house. <laughs> Give yes. me that theater any day. I love yeah. it. Absolutely. Gorgeous, gorgeous theater. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's this 499-seat theater, and we have affordable ticket prices, which, you know, which is great because residents of Washington Heights can come see our show. It doesn't, right. it doesn't break your wallet. You don't have to save a month's rent as I would have to do to buy, you know, tickets for, for me and the family. Um, so, so I'm very proud that we're in this off-Roadway run and we're having a great time uh, in the space. So I don't know, I don't know anything about moving or anything like that, but we're having a great time where we are. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck as thank this continues on. Thanks very much for coming in. And thank okay, you, thank, thank you. you. On the boards. 
we all know uh, how much we love getting a knock on the door from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you're a theater fan, maybe you'd appreciate a knock on your door from this company that is producing a play called The Sublet Experiment in various apartments around Manhattan. We have with us Ethan Youngerman, who's the playwright and co-producer, as well as Michelle Tattenbaum, who's the director and co-producer here with us today. How are you doing? Hi, we're great. Hey, thanks for having us. What made you decide to go ahead and perform this in different apartments for, I understand, a maximum of about 12 people? Uh, we can actually squeeze in a few more. We're in a loft uh, this month in Soho where we can actually fit 40. Um, but the smallest we've done it for is, is 12. Yeah. You know what New York apartments are like, so <laughs> you can sort of imagine a bunch of people in your living room and that's how many people. But uh, I wrote the play um, thinking that it would be a play for a regular theater. It's a play about a guy who serially sublets apartments in an attempt to sort of figure out who he is. At some point in the process, it occurred to me that it would be pretty crazy to do it in apartments and to do it traveling from apartment to apartment. Because the character is in the process of traveling from apartment to apartment in his own life, we knew that if we were going to do it in apartments, the only reason to do it would be in order to do it in multiple places. Um, so then when Ethan gave me the play to read back in the fall of 2005, I think it was, and I really responded to the play very strongly and um, very really strongly. very strongly <laughs> and really loved it. And he said, so my idea is to do it in apartments. And I you know, immediately saw how that could be just a great way to do a play and, a, and also a really great um, way to deal with the whole issue of space in this city. It's just so hard to find space to to do anything. I mean, it's hard to find space to live in. It's hard to find space to to produce a show in. Um, space is incredibly expensive. And if we can use, you know, to, to use a space for a purpose other than it, its initial intention, um, not only sort of gets around the New York space crunch, but also um, makes you, you know, your experience of that space and then what happens in there is totally different. So how do you find your spaces? Do you like call up and strong arm your friends and go, you know, you owe me like 50 bucks from last week. Uh. We, we never strong armed anyone. I think that, that was like one of the hardest things. It, it was my general impulse is to strong arm people. And so it was difficult. No, uh, you know, we asked every single person we knew and almost every single person we knew said no. But uh, we know enough people that uh, about a dozen people so far have said yes. And, and the people who said yes were really excited about it. So you had to sort of ask everybody and most people said no. And you're like, OK, you know, it's totally fine. It's just I was consistently surprised at the people who were really thrilled to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and found it to be a really rewarding and fun experience. It's, but... You know, we we never wanted to, to pressure anybody because what we've been doing is performing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evening. So your days are pretty much fine, but then your evenings, if we're in your home, are a little bit shot. Like, you've either got to watch the play or lock yourself in your room or leave the apartment. So by the end of the weekend, I pretty much think our hosts... We're happy to have had us, but glad to see us go. Like house guests who've stayed just a little well, bit too long. It's the old expression, you know, house guests and fish stink after three days. Right. A play stinks four after days. four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Definitely. and the hosts go, oh, wait a minute. I, I really want to watch CSI. I forgot about CSI. <laughs> we did have someone who had to get work done in their apartment and, like, stayed in their bedroom and worked during the play. But I think if anybody had, like, specific TV requirements, we would just 
you know, DVR it for them somewhere else <laughs> and provide them with a videotape or, you know, we'll, we're like full service um, house guests. So yeah. we yeah, try to fair. we try to meet people's needs. Now, you opened the show in November. Yeah, that's right. The weekend before Thanksgiving. And uh, when we were talking before the interview, I, I actually thought the word open was, you know, odd with given the project. But it is. You have been doing a regular schedule pretty much every weekend, every every night. I guess the only yep. question is where people have to go to find the play. Exactly. Well, we send everybody to our website, which is www.subletexperiment, all one word, dot com. Wait, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> www.subletexperiment.com. Oh. And, um... We've been keeping people's addresses just on the website in order to protect people's privacy a little bit. Um, you know, you can only find the addresses where we're doing the play if you're interested enough in the play to go to our website. And then when you're there, you will not find an apartment number. Um, and we have someone who waits at the front door of the building and, you know, checks in everybody who's bought tickets. And you can, when you go to our website, you can link through to buy tickets online so that. We don't, we don't really do a lot of walk-up business, but yeah, every but once in a while. It's like a speakeasy, you know? Yes. I mean, there's something very... You know, there are people handing out flyers on the street in the front of the apartment. <laughs> no. like, Come so on in! We got, like, a macaroni salad. <laughs> you know, if if, uh, <laughs> if you're coming, you, you want to come, and uh, there's no marquee. We've performed as high as, I don't know, the 20th floor or something, but it's very underground, despite that. Which I think is really fun for the audience. You know, you can sort of see on people's faces as they you know, make their way down a strange street or or people who just live across the street and come in with this big smile on their faces because all they did was leave their apartment across the street, cross the street yeah. and come in to see a play. Often there's a, you know, a, a slight sort of sense of mystery for audience members. Like, what's going to happen to me now? I'm coming to this address and something's going to happen. <laughs> and we've we've killed very few of our paying audience members, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Now, do the hosts also like invite a lot of their friends? Going, yo, I gotta, I gotta yes, play. Absolutely. I'm a theater now. Yes, absolutely, and, and that's the, really mean, fun for them. And they for are us. hosts, you know. And a couple of people have had, you know, five or six friends to a performance, and then everyone applauds, and the actors leave, and the friends stay and drink wine. And they, there's a real sort of uh, grandeur, I think, to the. And, to the gesture. And then also, you know, it's always fun for other audience members to, you know, people are always curious about whose apartment it is. So, you know, it's fun when the host is actually there and people like to find out a little bit about whose apartment it is. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we always make sure that, um, you know, that they know when tickets have gone on sale for their apartment so that they have the opportunity to you know, contact their friends. And it's kind of also... sad if your apartment gets sold out. And you but can't that, that did happen to someone whose apartment was very small and, like, we just, he wasn't able to get his friends to mobilize quickly enough and, like, the place sold out so fast. <laughs> that, w- that was very tragic. Now, you, you actually use the apartment and the various rooms in it as the set pieces for your show. Now, mm-hmm. have the different layouts of different apartments ever caused any uh, interesting occurrences while you've been performing the show? Each place has its own character, and the actors are really good at adjusting their performances to the space. You know, they have certain tactics that they use for smaller spaces um, and certain tactics that they use for larger spaces. So, you know, they're pretty good at adjusting in that way. I mean, the first weekend we did the play in Ethan's apartment, and the floors, he had hardwood floors that were unbelievably creaky. It was like the creakiest apartment I have ever been in. It's like being on a ship. (laughs) Every step. So it was, so we had to like 
create this rule that you couldn't talk while you were moving. Yeah. And you couldn't move while someone else was talking either. So, it, <laughs> you know, there are little things like that where you really have to sort of figure out what are the quirks of this space and adjust yourself. But it was like if you walked and spoke at the same time, then no one would be able to understand what you were saying. Yeah, they all went on a crash diet before that performance <laughs> just to really. They learned how to tiptoe. And he taught, he taught them all kinds of, like, tiptoeing techniques for avoiding the creakiness. Wow. <laughs> so sometimes things like that. So now for March, you're actually going to be performing in one space the entire month. How's that going to screw with you? We're settling down. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, getting, we're getting old. We just uh, we wanted a little stability. We wanted a piece of the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, really, I mean, that's basically, it's been pretty exhausting each weekend, you know, doing this kind of guerrilla theater situation where... Exhausting artistically, too, for the actors to have to... Adjust every week. Yeah. I mean, the play has sort of had a really nice fluidity to it because it's sort of had to adjust each week and change each week. Um, Just in terms of the text pretty much stays the same except for a few lines here and there, but the staging and the, the business that the actors do is a little different every time. And so it'll be nice to to give the play the chance to just really solidify in one space. Um, And also we were looking forward to uh, allowing more people to see it. So, you know, finding a big space like this loft um, is going to let a lot more people come in. I mean, still, like, a 40-seat house is still tiny (laughs) by any standard, but but for us it's huge. Except our standards. Um, I mean, every week when we've been moving, like, Ethan has a car, and the entire show fits in his car. And he would drive to the apartment, and we'd unload it on Thursday evening. And then on Sunday evening, he'd drive back, and we'd load everything back into his car. And, like, for more than half the week, Ethan's car is full of junk. And he's driving all over the city to (laughs) every neighborhood. Please, (laughs) props. Props. So, you know, even just... Eliminating that that logistical business is just going to make a huge impact uh, on us. You can write another play in the time you save on uh, Exactly. Yeah, that's true. I probably will. About. <laughs> it's also a very, very cool space. It's one of those old-fashioned lofts. Like back when real artists moved into lofts in Soho and they were these kind of somewhat raw kinds of spaces – um, it uh, really has that old-fashioned loft feel, not like a you know multimillion-dollar.com billionaire, you know, bought a loft and completely re- gutted it and renovated it. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming down. And thank it's you. subletexperiment.com to yep. find out. Yeah, uh, how did you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, best of luck with the continued run. And I, I hope some of our listeners check out this. Uh, sounds like a very fun project. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. The Call Board. First, I want to put a call out to our regular listeners. Maybe uh, some of you are musical directors slash accompanists. Uh, I have a feeling we might be able to get more of uh, these names to perform live in the studio if we can actually provide them with an accompanist. The problem, uh, as many of you know who listen to the show, is we've got no money. But I would very gladly plug your services prominently on the show when you do come on and play, and it will not be a huge time commitment. Um, if we can get, like, two people who are available to do this occasionally... Wouldn't be every episode, and when it would be, it'd probably be like an hour rehearsal with the person and then an hour to come in the studio. And we'll tell everybody about what you do. So please email me at info at broadwaybullet.com if you are interested in participating that way. Got a few uh, charity things going on coming up soon. On March 19th, there is the Nothing Like a Dame Benefit by Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS for the Phyllis Newman Women's Health Initiative. 
Uh, we talked with Frank Conway of the organization last week on Volume 104, so you can check that out for a lot more information. Also, on March 19th, the Roundabout's Spring Gala, Beyond the Velvet Rope to Benefit the Roundabout. <laughs> and on March 26th, Legends of the American Academy of Dramatic Arts honoring Charles Durning, Gina Rowlands, and Anne Bancroft. For more information on all these events, please visit broadwaybullet.com and click on the Volume 105 show notes. In there, we do indeed have absolutely every link to anything we talk about in this entire program. It's very comprehensive, and I, I thank our new interns, Victoria Myers, Laura Costa, and Hallie Parsonette for coming up with such great material on the website to augment what's going on with the program. And I want to remind everybody that we are still ongoing our big Fanyangtastic Broadway Bullet Bubble Birthday Blowout Contest. We liked it very much, right? She said it was a wonderful show. Have you ever seen anything like it? No. No, we're from Holland. Can you say Broadway Bullet Bubble Birthday Blowout five times fast? <laughs> no, I know I can. Broadway Bullet. No. Broadway Bubble Blowout. That'll do. <laughs> we loved it. Can you Do you want to come again? <laughs> it was Fanyan. That's steak. Broadway Bullet Bubble Birthday Blowout? Yeah, just came out of Gazillion Bubble Show. What did uh, you think? Loved it. It was amazing. How did you like the show? Great. <laughs> Remember, just register on the website, broadwaybullet.com, because uh, if we get more than 200 people who register before the end of March, we're going to have 75 pairs of tickets to give away for April 26th at the Gazillion Bubble Show. And it's going to be my birthday blowout. My birthday's on April 29th, so uh, we're celebrating it in style on the 26th, and we'll be going out afterwards as well. There's a grand prize. Simply email us a photo at info at broadwaybullet.com of you taking pictures of bubbles in a creative or, let's say, inappropriate place. And uh, the grand prize winner is going to get front row center seats at the show and get their picture taken inside of a big bubble. So... Everybody register. The registrations aren't coming in fast enough. I, I want to be able to give away more than 50 pairs, and we can give away 75 if there's more than 200 people registered by then. In the best of companies. For any arts organization to make it to its 10th anniversary in any community is quite an achievement, but given the number of startups every year in the arts community in New York City, I'd have to say it's an extra special event in New York City. Thank you very much. <laughs> We've got... Two people that have been involved from the very beginning with the Oberon Theater Ensemble celebrating their 10th anniversary here with us in the studio. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Doing all right. Thank you. Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourselves? All right. My name is Brad Fryman. I'm the artistic director of the Oberon Theater Ensemble. Oh, Brad's that and so much more. Uh, my name's William Laney, and I'm uh, an actor and a fellow Oberon member. And you've been appeared in about how many shows with Oberon? Uh, seven or eight shows. Why don't you start off by telling us how uh, Oberon got started? Excellent. About 10 years ago, we got together. We were doing a show in somebody's basement, essentially. King Henry lower, V. On the Lower East Side. And we started thinking that maybe we could provide a little bit better environment for artists to work. Um, we thought the work was great, but there were moldy ceilings, people coming into the show in the middle of the show. And, and so we got together and we started to uh, brainstorm on how we could create the environment for a group of artists to work. And, and immediately the artists started coming and um, we started producing. We also, you know, we became fast friends and we just wanted more control over what we did and the shows that we wanted to do. And we said, hey, it's... Uh 
let's form our own company. Right now, the two shows you're doing in rep, one is uh, kind of a musical of Mary Wives of Windsor, but does it stay pretty close to the original Shakespearean it's text besides absolutely that? truthful to the text that Shakespeare wrote. And then The Sweet Love Adieu is a new verse comedy kind of based on that style. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's a, a new play written all in verse, and um, essentially the playwright tells us uh, it's essentially the story of Romeo and Juliet, but a contemporary comedy. So has that kind of been your mission all along to pair up two similar but different one classic one new thing is that yeah, or is that something new it's it's not something that we we just always try to produce a classic a contemporary play and an original play every year and um and oftentimes we find that there's this correlation that's kind of built in as we develop the season what are your favorite ones to participate in there uh, william yeah i i gotta say i i have a a liking to the bard i love the classical work uh we're, we've done some checkoff, and we're discussing the possibility of a, a Greek play here in the near future. But our palette's varied. Uh, we've done a lot of new works from local playwrights, and it's a good mix. One of my favorite performances of William Laney was The Physicists by Dernmont. We did it a couple of years back right on 43rd Street, right across the street. Mm. It was a lot of fun. What are some of the favorite uh, original playwrights that you've kind of cha championed with your organization? Whitney Hamilton. She's a, a, a local playwright, and uh, she also does um, create movies, short films, and full features. Lanny Hill is another playwright that we've uh, championed. And, One of our founders and used to be my co-artistic director, Donovan Johnson. Yes. Yeah. Donovan, yeah. Now, in the competitive landscape that is definitely New York theater, what are, you, what are some of the best ways you've found to spread the word and, and get the word out to the audiences to survive for 10 years here? I love that you ask that question. I really do. Um, this is Mary Wives of Windsor is an incredibly exciting um, production. We have people working from so many different companies in New York City, New Jersey Shakespeare. Um, the associate director runs the Prospect Theater Company. Um, the uh, Resonance Theater Ensemble helps us tremendously all the time. Boomerang Theater Ensemble. So what? It is a competitive market, but I think there's room for a lot of great shows in New York. So I try to, and we try to, just give us the environment to all kind of work together and see what we can do. But given, you know, that you can't, I'm sure you can't compete budget-wise with Wicked on their advertising <laughs> palette, what are some of the things you do specifically to market and get the word out about the shows so that your actors are performing for an appreciative audience? Yeah, well, our history, 10 years, helps us a lot. Yes. So there have been people in the past that continually come back. Um, this musician, Mickey Zetz, has created an incredible amount of music for the Merry Wives that's all brand new. There's no way anybody can say they've done this show like we're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, and he has quite a following of his own. And, and because we're working with so many professionals that really do um, a lot in New York City, word gets out. Yeah. So. We also uh, we have an educational outreach program, and we're starting to uh, just put on educational theater for younger people, and that's a, you're cultivating your future audience, and their parents and their families become aware of Oberon Theater Ensemble, so there's a growth uh, in that direction as well. 
And you've mentioned Sweet Love Ado already. We're giving um, Sweet Love Ado by Ryan J.W. Smith its first major USA production. Yeah. And um, he's a playwright that the BBC has dubbed the 21st century bard. And um, with that, doing original work, we hope that a lot of people come on down to see something that no one's ever really seen before. Has there been anywhere along the past 10 years where things got rough and you're like, ah, I'm going to throw in the towel? <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> no, yeah, um, it's incredibly hard. The, the most frustrating thing is because we do gather some really incredible artists, it becomes... Um, for instance, Don Harvey is directing uh, Sweet Love Adieu. It becomes in- incredibly frustrating when we can't provide what all of these actors, directors, playwrights really deserve. So that's the most frustrating part. But what we found is if we all work together utilizing each other's resources, even if we're not able to land a helicopter on stage, by focusing on the characters' relationships, we can really present some beautiful pieces of theater. I think we can land a helicopter on this stage. <laughs> <laughs> now, William, you've participated like in eight or nine shows. How many of the actors in the ensemble are kind of like regulars who come back year after year? Oh, to- we, we've, got, we've got a fine stable of actors. Mac Bryden, Stuart Walker, Laura Siner. The list goes on and on. And we... We're Is it fortunate. daunting when somebody new comes in for them? Well, you know, there's a certain, there's something to be said for new blood coming in from time to time, and we do get to reach into other theater companies and and work with other talent from from other companies here in town, and it it just makes our our group a little bigger, a little stronger. But going back to what you asked, yeah, we have we have a really good group of uh, core actors that have that have been there for a long time. Walter Brandis and yeah. Yeah, but we we do open our arms to f- new, fresh talent. Um, it is that talent. And off, went right when Oberon started, next thing we knew, Bill Laney was going to the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia to do a huge, you know, a huge show of the Buddy Holly story. So we lost him for a year. So uh, working with talent that's um, desired talent, there's always room for more because people have to go and do their profession. And we jobs. want people to go away and, and, and work and prosper and then come back. It just just makes our company stronger. Now, the two shows you got running now are at the Theater Row, which is right there in 42nd, so that's got to be exciting. Incredibly exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're running till the beginning of April, is that? April 1st, the Sweet Love Adieu closes. We open Merry Wives of Windsor March 8th. Where can they go to get tickets for those? They can go right on to TicketCentral.com and uh, look up Merry Wives of Windsor or Sweet Love Adieu, and they'll give you the tickets right there. Well, the Merry Wives of Windsor is indeed the original Shakespearean text. You've added, Mickey Zetz has added a lot of music to this, and we're going to play one of the songs here. From the, you want to tell us a little bit about this? Um, this is the setup to the show. It's been a phenomenal experience working with Mickey. Um, we told him our ideas. We said, uh, uh, let's think about Falstaff as kind of like a rock and roll night. And, um, and he took the direction and the play, and he just ran with it. And you'll see in this introductory to the whole world of the play that it's very interesting and fun. We think Shakespeare would have enjoyed it. Yeah, you would. <laughs> well, Bill and Brad, thank you for coming down as you're getting ready to put together this great package for people. Thanks so thank much you. for having us. I don't think I've ever been near to quite understanding Shakespeare. Without it, I noted 
semi misquoted. The meaning to me has been unclear. Perhaps it's a lack of education leading me to such frustration. But those these and vows and chivalrous vows I find need better translation. So welcome all to Windsor, Windsor, Windsor. Welcome all to Windsor, Windsor 2006. Yes, welcome all to Windsor, Windsor, Windsor. Welcome all to Windsor. Now can you picture this? A house of page, a house of fold, a rock and roll knight who's unemployed, a Welsh priest and a doctor here from France. And from the house of page, there's a beautiful young maid, and seemingly everyone wants to get in her pants. So welcome all to Windsor, Windsor, Windsor. Welcome all to Windsor, Windsor 2006. Yes, welcome all to Windsor, 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 Windsor. Welcome all to Windsor. The body would be pissed. You know, I realise it's now 2007. Yes, it is. Yes. But I wrote this song just last year, and it stuck like herpes. Yes, nothing rhymes with seven, but eleven and heaven, and that would make the whole song sort of suck. <laughs> As if it didn't already. <laughs> so welcome all to Windsor, Windsor, Windsor. Welcome all to Windsor, Windsor present day. Yes, welcome all to Windsor, 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 Windsor. Welcome all to Windsor. Now here begins the play. Now here begins the play. On the positive side. Hey, this is once again Marty Cooper on the positive side.、Uh, I'm sorry I missed you all last week. I was down with the plague that seems to be striking New York.、Uh, I'm still trying to shake it, but、uh, I'm getting through it okay.、Uh, except for the incredible cold weather outside, everything seems to be fine. I was a little upset last week, and I was in kind of a blue mood. And since I am the self-professed、uh, real-life man in the chair,、uh, I started thinking of some of the things that I really liked over the years that、uh, no one bothered paying attention to. I saw a show in London back in 1993, as I tend to see most of Cameron Mackintosh's productions. This was a ridiculous show called. Moby Dick. I just refreshed my memory by looking it up on the internet.、Uh, written by one Robert Longden and one Howard Kay. It played at the Piccadilly in London, one of my favorite places to be.、Uh, find great food, great company,、uh, but that's another story. Went in expecting to see something really ridiculous, and I did. It's about an all-girls school and them having the absurd idea of putting on a. A production of Moby Dick. What took place in the next two hours was laughable,、uh, laughable to the extent that you just had told yourself, "Gee, this is kind of funny and cute."、Uh, and there were actually some hummable tunes. There was a school mom played by、uh, Tony Monopoly. I think that's his name. It's a, a British actor. And he played the school mom in drag and did a great song called "Can't Hold Back the Night."、Uh, the second act started with a scrim in front of the stage and people、uh, knocking paddle balls into the scrim, and the audience wore 3D glasses and saw the stuff coming at them. That's how funny this was. Towards the end of the show, where they catch the whale, a bunch of girls with umbrellas make up. 
the whale on stage and a fan comes from behind them and uh, uh, they're shooting water guns at the audience to make you feel splashed on. This is how stupid this was. But when the two hours was over, I thought to myself, gee, I had kind of a good time. And I actually bought a t-shirt in the lobby to remember this event. Actually, the, uh, one of the stars of the show was Cameron McIntosh's sister-in-law. She was married to his brother, Robert McIntosh. Uh, a few years back, I think in 2003, at the Duke on 42nd Street, they, uh, they did a reading of it with Brian Batt playing the school mom. Uh, and that was kind of funny. And it was thought that they would possibly try to tour with the show because it did develop some kind of a cult following. In fact, the audience we were sitting with was singing along with the songs. A couple of the highlights, as I say, were Can't Hold Back Tonight. The finale of the show, of course, was a song called Save the Whale. A great song called, great R&B song called The Man Happens, which would be a great song for uh, the recently awarded Jennifer Hudson, because it's her kind of tune. All in all, I had a good time. It's one of those things that when I say this to people, they look funny at me. One interesting thing is they actually recorded the closing day of the show. The owner at the time of First Night Records liked it so much he decided to release it. And then B Bill Rosenfeld at RCA, the A&R man at RCA here, decided to put it out on a double disc. And until a few years ago, it was available for your listening pleasure. You might be able to find it in some places, maybe at Colony, for instance. Actually, a two-CD set. Uh, they just recorded the whole thing. It's a lot of fun, and it cheers me up on those blue days. Next week, I'm going to probably bring up a few more of my favorites that a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, so until next week, stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. On the boards. Hollywood's always been a fan of the Buddy movie. On stage at the New World Stages in New York City, we have a different sort of Buddy play going on, but one that also addresses a history that, whether or not we're directly involved, has influenced our lives. The play is called Bill W. and Dr. Bob, and it is the story of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a tremendous success at the New Rep Theater in Boston. It's transferred now to New York, and we have one of the playwrights, Steve Bergman, and the director, Rick Lombardo, here in the studio with us. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. <laughs> what inspired you, Steve, uh, with your wife to write this play? Well, we both uh, were, are, were therapists. I'm a, I used to be a psychiatrist. She was a psychologist. And we both wound up working with alcoholics and addicts in therapy. And that led us to uh, discover and learn about Alcoholics Anonymous because I insisted my patients go to, to AA. And then we decided we wanted to uh, write something together, and we came across this story of how these two men uh, were going to die, and then through an incredible series of events, call it karma or chance, they were brought together in Akron, Ohio in uh, May of 1935, and uh, they talked for six hours at one meeting, and that led to the whole founding of AA. It was just an incredible uh, American success story of uh, two guys who were going to die who got together and found a way to heal themselves. And then that meeting, of course, was replicated and is replicated every day 
all over the world. So it was a terrific story, demanded to be written. We were sure somebody must have come across it. No one had come across it. Um, and we decided it had to be done live on stage because it's guys talking to the audience as the play starts. Now, Rick, how did you discover this for your uh, new rep theater company that you're artistic director for? Yeah, well, it goes back about uh, three years. Um, Stephen, and, Stephen and Jan actually live uh, about a mile and a half from uh, my theater's location uh, just outside of Boston. Uh, apparently, they they had become fans of New Rep, and, and they had seen my work as a director. Um, actually, the play had its very first reading uh, before I was at New Rep, but at New Repertory Theater. Was that something like... Uh, 90, 1990. So 17 years ago. And then it, and then it had had a, a few productions around the country in a, in a very different version than the version that we're doing now. Stephen and Jan asked me to have a cup of coffee with them about three years ago and said that, that they were very interested in in working on the play again, and that there was some possible interest of a, of a production in New York if if we could get a successful regional production of the play going, and uh, that they were interested in working with me as a director. So I, I, I took a look at the play. Um, first of all, I, I was drawn to the play because I, I did have a very uh, close family member of mine that I, that I saw go uh, successfully into recovery uh, through AA later in life. So I knew, I knew the, the power of transformation that could happen. Um, and then I was really interested in how that would translate into theatrical terms on the stage. I think we worked then for about a year and a half on uh, revisions in the text, uh, which led to the production uh, at New Rep almost exactly a year ago to the, to the day of our New York opening. <laughs> Quickly, it became uh, the largest grossing play in New Rep's 22-year history. So uh, clearly, I realized that, um, that there was a phenomenon at work here. So what do you think had something to do, do with that? Do you think it's maybe the inherent, like, kind of, people always say word of mouth carries a play. But in, in this, I imagine a lot of the people that see the shows are in situations where literally that word of mouth can have a lot of meaning because they might actually be going to their meetings with 30 people the next night. Yeah, and yeah I, th I think the remarkable thing is that it's a play with two audiences. It's a play with uh, a word of mouth audience through the 12-step and other recovery and treatment communities uh, that spreads like wildfire. I mean, all over the country, not just in Boston. And then it's a play. They start to bring their families and friends. And then regular theater audiences come and uh, they say, hey, this is, this is just a great story. It's, it's, it's a great play. You don't have to be an AA to, to appreciate it. And that's the thing that we were so excited about. And it just had a three-week run in Boston. By, by the end of the three weeks, you know, the theater was packed every night. And, and it was a phenomenon, not just a play. I, I would say over about the, the month or so of the run in Boston, there were some folks who came to see the play three or four times. And just this week, a woman came up to me after one of our, in the first week of our previews here, came up to me and said, um, you know, I saw the play twice last year in Boston. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> and, and she was and she was already here to see it again in our in our first week of previews. I, you're right because the play, it certainly does function for some members of our audience. Folks who are who are uh, in the AA fellowship tell us that that it functions for them sometimes as a replacement for going to one of their meetings. That it feels to them like it's a meeting. That it's in a it's a live event. Um, the characters of Bill and Bob are talking directly to the audience at certain points. They tell their story to each other and to us. Um, which is the, you know, the essential dynamic at an AA meeting is folks telling their story to each other. So um, the play works on a lot of different levels. But, but like Steve said, for me, primarily as a theater artist, my interest was to make sure that we found a way 
to make this as good a play as it could be, not just rely on the fact that there might be mm -hmm. a built-in audience for the play, but to really do justice to this as a piece of theater and as, as Steve said, really one of the great American success stories of the 20th century um, that I think a lot of folks outside of the AA community, me included, didn't know, don't know about until we enter the world of the play and then find there's this astonishing story of coincidences and life experiences and tragedies that brought these two guys together. And uh, through one six-hour conversation, they started this, they, they, they dropped a pebble in a pond that sent out ripples that today literally are, are spreading all over the world because you do have AA meetings happening in almost every country of the world as we speak. Now, when you talk about, you know, making sure the play works on a dramatic level, anytime you do a biography, I imagine there's a bit of a balance of how true exactly do we stay to the circumstances and how much do we fictionalize that but try to stay to the honesty of what we're, you know, fictionalizing about. How, how, how many balances did you have to find in, in that? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I've written a lot of plays and a lot of novels, and this was in some ways the toughest because it's a history. And we felt that we wanted to accomplish both things, make it a good play, but make it an authentic history, because it's an important subject to get right. The early drafts were much closer to the historical record. We didn't really go further. And what Rick really helped us do, I remember before the Boston production, one of the big things that Janet, my wife, the co-author, uh, and I had, we realized is that when you're writing this story, you can never be in a position when you're writing any character that they know they're founding AA. Mm -hmm. They're just two drunks who are literally trying to stay alive one moment at a time. And that's the shift that we made, I think, in the, in the drafts that led to the Boston production is that this has to be right where they are right at that time. The other thing, though, is we did a lot of research. We went everywhere these guys had grown up, where they'd been. We spent a lot of time in Akron. We knew anybody. We got to know anybody who knew them that we could find. And so we started with a very f strong foundation. And as we'd, we've sort of whittled it down, as we've gone more in the you know, artistic, dramatic dimension of it, it always stays you know, sound in terms of what, the, what we're talking about. And that's a real, you know, we couldn't do this without a, that measure of authenticity. What were some of the biggest, maybe, changes that you felt needed to be made, Rick, as you worked with the show? Well, we, we've changed it so much over the last three years and, and continue to change it almost daily. Although I think we're I done. I think we're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, one thing that is that we wanted to make sure that uh, we always stayed ahead of the audience, that, that, that in, the, in the telling of the story, that, that we weren't revealing our hand too much, so that the audience was able to make their own discoveries. And this was one of the things that I think that um, we've worked the most on together. Because in the, in the sort of official authorized histories of these guys, which are very well told, there are a lot of books about them, both authorized and unauthorized. They're almost all from, you know, years after the fact, people remembering. And you, you know the way when we remember, ultimately, when something leads to success, and then we remember the days when we were putting it together, you know, our memory of it does shift a little bit. I think one of, the, one of the things was to make sure that, as Steve said, that at every line, at every moment of the play, that we weren't having the characters or the audience be able to anticipate what the next step was. 
to, to find the greatest level of uncertainty at every moment, which would increase what's at stake on the stage. And that's, you know, that's, what, that's what audiences like to see. They like to, they like to see danger and people in danger and then see them you know, grapple their way either out of it if it's, if it's a redemptive comedy or they never do if it's a tragedy. <laughs> Seems to be working. The advanced sales for an off-Broadway play are just uh, through the roof as well in New York. So I definitely wish you guys the best success with the continued run of the show. It just opened. I thank you very much for coming in during your busy schedules at this time to talk about the show. It's our pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Top of the trades. Well, there's nothing like a good cat fight between producers, and Broadway always loves that so-called sure thing. So, needless to say, we hear reports that evidently up to 11 Broadway producers have already made offers to bring Equus to Broadway. West End producer David Pug was telling FemaleFirst.co.uk that star Daniel Radcliffe and Richard Griffiths, along with director Thea Sharrock, are all, quote, up for it. Oh, yeah. Given the naked pictures. Love that quote. So it's only a matter of time to sort out a producer. And they're all making their bids. The show would likely hit Broadway in the fall of 2008, not as previously reported in 2007, due to the filming schedule for Harry Potter. Darlene Wilson, who was the assistant choreographer and the original Lady of the Lake standby of Spamalot, passed away on Friday, March 2nd of cancer-related causes. Wilson made her Broadway debut as a replacement Cassandra in Cats and also appeared as an understudy and an ensemble member of Sunset Boulevard as a replacement Hunyak in Chicago and as a harem girl in Sideshow. She served as the assistant choreographer of Sideshow, the Scarlet Pimpernel, and the Flower Drum Song Revival, as well as of Spamalot. Spamalot original cast member Steve Rosen said she was a wonderfully talented human being who was as compassionate and wonderful a person as she was a performer. The new Hollywood golden age of musicals continues. Variety reports this morning that Pierce Brosnan will star in the feature film adaptation of Mamma Mia! opposite Meryl Street. Brosnan will star as Sam in the film, one of Mamma Mia's, quote, potential fathers. Variety also notes that Brosnan isn't a total stranger to the world of singing, having sung on screen in the indie film Evelyn, along with some onstage appearances earlier in his career. Brosnan tells Variety that, quote, I said yes right away because it meant working with Meryl Streep. Secondly, I saw the show with my family in London and found it just so wonderfully happy and joyful. Unquote. We hear reports they're going to re-edit the Broadway commercial of Mamma Mia with Pierce Brosnan shaking his bonbon and clapping with a big smile. The film begins shooting on June 25th, 2007 in London and Greece. We'll have more of theater's top stories for you next week in Top of the Trades. When Mickey Zett sent over the MP3 for Windsor for our coverage of Oberon, he also sent along another song, and we've got a few more minutes, so we'll play this song as well from Merry Wives of Windsor, and it's called This Love. I don't often pray these days But maybe I got a chance to mend my ways I know you've heard it all before But this time hear me please Oh Lord Forever in this world I want this girl 
love in my heart that I'm needing to share If you can just bless us and say you'll be there There's nothing I wouldn't do To prove all this love to you All right, I'm letting everybody know something new you can do. If you have a website, a MySpace page, a blog, anything, share our show. We've got a link right there on the front page underneath the subscribe buttons where you can click and get some code that embeds a player on your website that can play the Broadway Bullet podcast. So please do this. It would be a lot of help. I know a lot of people keep asking for bigger and bigger content, and it's a common statement on the surveys, and I do have to say... It's not like this desire to just cover smaller shows, though I always will continue to showcase theater of all sizes. But we've just got to build up our reputation in numbers so that the bigger Broadway shows take us seriously and want us here. So this is one way you can help, is if you've got a website, put our player on it. But even without that, we do have some decent things coming up in the next few episodes. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking with Jennifer Barnhart of Avenue Q. They just passed their 1500th performance. Can you believe it? And everybody thought it was just that puppet show. Uh, We're also going to be talking with Karen Ziamba. Oh, I love her. She's going to be in Curtains coming up. Pablo Schreiber is in Dying City at the Lincoln Center. And playwright Adam Rapp, who we mentioned in the news last week, has got a new play going up at Playwrights Horizons. And we will be talking with all of them over the next few episodes. A couple reminders. A few episodes back, I put out a call for musical composers to submit their songs. We are still gathering material for the Waitings in the Wings series, so if you've got an original song, please send us an MP3. It doesn't have to be high quality. It can even just be a cassette recorder of you at your piano. That's kind of the whole point of this. But then just send an MP3 to info at broadwaybullet.com with a lyric sheet and whatnot. We're going to be getting that together. Along the same lines, again, if you're a musical director or an accompanist, or if you know of a good one, and you'd like to help out and participate in the show a couple hours every now and then, please also drop me an email at info at broadwaybullet.com. Keep your general feedback coming. It really makes my day every time I get a letter from somebody, so you can send that also to info at broadwaybullet.com. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. I'll be back next week. But until then, thanks for hopping aboard the Broadway Bullet. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet. It's a moment. Jake Cousins is my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just showing vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when you proposed. Um, yeah.
audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.